Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk to the head of the National Education Association. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers topics that include the recent override of the governor's veto of a bill dealing with health orders, President Biden's recent visit to Columbus, and a look at highway projects in Columbus. In the second half hour, I'll talk to the president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, and also Dwayne Casares, the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Becky Pringle, who is the president of the National Education Association. How are you? I am good, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us a little bit about the National Education Association. The National Education Association is the largest labor union in the United States of America. We have over three, three million members. We are teachers and nurses and counselors and bus drivers and food service workers. We have aspiring educators. We're very excited there are students who want to go into the profession. Um, our retired members and higher education members. And this has been an unbelievably challenging year. Well, that's an understatement, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Challenging. That, 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 that's the word we're using. A lot of people have, have been using unprecedented, but we kind of overuse that word. <laughs> um, yes. I, I try to remember. I think I yell, yell this uh, to people five times a day. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> and who has been in a pandemic before? That's right. You know, we need to show each other a little um, grace and and give us give ourselves a moment to, to figure it out but most especially we need to embrace our our own and others humanity and work together to figure this out and so we've been working for over a year as you know calling for the support from the federal government to provide the resources so our students all of them can go back to in-person learning safely and equitably we finally finally work under the leadership of our president joe biden got the American Rescue Plan passed, and we are eagerly waiting for the funds to uh, reach our schools, our districts and our schools, so that we can begin the work of addressing um, the reality that too many of our students didn't have what they needed over this past year. One of the big concerns deals with mandatory testing and exactly how relevant it even is, given how disruptive the last year has been. Not only is it not relevant, it's not, they're, you know, they're not reliable, they're not valid. We all have watched what has happened with our students throughout this year, beginning with the stress and the trauma, the loss, the grief of, of uh, seeing family members die, of seeing them get uh, very, very sick, of seeing them lose their jobs of not knowing where they might live, of missing meals, of going hungry. That has been happening for a year. For us to be even talking about standardized testing in this moment, honestly, honestly, Dave, it, it borders on malpractice. It really, really does. Most of our schools um, are return, have returned to in-person learning um, thanks to the efforts by President Biden to prioritize educators for vaccines. Um, uh, knowing that we're going to be getting funding from the federal government to put in place the mitigation strategies that the CDC has called for. And the, the last thing we want to do is subject them to standardized tests. What we want to do is create that time for them to learn, uh, to grow, to, to be supported, um, not only academically, but social, socially and emotionally. We have so much to do. 
and we don't have time for tests that are meaningless and will tell us absolutely nothing about what our students need in this moment. Are this year's seniors going to be ready for college in the fall? I will tell you, Dave, one of the things that I've been saying is that educators have been assessing students all year. This, we're, we're just calling for the cancellation of standardized tests. We've been assessing our students all year, making those kinds of decisions, whether they have enough, or in, in the instance of high school students, whether they're going to have enough credits to graduate. Our K-12 students, whether they're going to, whether they have uh, the competencies, the skills, and, and knowledge that they need to go on to the next level. So we've been ma- we've been doing those assessments uh, throughout the year. We're just calling for those assessments to be used for the statewide accountability system. So that's what we're we're calling for, and we are providing uh, right now and throughout the summer the kind of intensive academic and social and emotional support that our students, our rising seniors have need um, as they're applying to colleges, or there's that, but also for those who are, 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 are in 12th grade now and preparing to go on to college, that we're continuing that support through the summer. Talking with Becky Pringle, she's the president of the NEA. Communities and and schools, the connection between the two is always vitally important. Sports is a big part of that. Even that's been disrupted. But how do you feel during the pandemic? How has that bond been affected between communities and schools? It really depends, Dave. Honestly, in those communities where they have put in place what we call community schools, and they already had them in place that are already um, built those um, systems and processes and structures, relationships, partnerships with the community, uh, the community food bank, the community, um, the, the, the health care system, the hospitals, the Boys and Girls Club, where the, where the school was the hub of that community, and they were not only serving the students but their entire families. Where they had those in place, they actually weathered this pandemic and all the crises that it spawned uh, much better than those that didn't have those in place. So what we're doing is working on making sure that all communities have access to setting up community schools, and we're working on that. Uh, we're working on that right now because this will not end. The post-pandemic will will never go back to. As I hear people saying that all all the time, you know, we want to go back to normal. Uh, we will reopen our society, and if that's what they mean by normal, yep, we will. We will go back to that. But we can't go back because we know that these inequities that everyone else saw when our students were and and educators had to immediately on a dime go to virtual learning, educators have seen those inequities forever and they've been trying their best to stand in those gaps, but we can't do that by ourselves. We needed the help of the federal government and state and local governments as well. And that's what we're calling on um, for our policymakers to stand up and do what's right for our students. And I wanted to ask you real quick, do you think there's a new level of appreciation for what teachers go through because of the way the last year's been? I absolutely do, certainly. You know, we've always had a great relationship with our parents, but when they had to uh, uh, step in and and help and help and be a, and assist us as, as their students continue to learn, uh, they realized when they saw those virtual classrooms in front of them and what educators have to do, the, 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 the very uh, wide range of learning styles and, and um, uh, kids being in that same space, even a virtual space, I will tell you, Dave, is challenging um, uh, for middle school students and parents saw that but and that's one of the examples that I want to use as we don't want to go back to the bond between our parents and our and teachers this year and the new ways we discovered that we could work together to benefit and and meet the individual needs of our students 
it's one of the things that we're going to bring forward, uh, even post-pandemic. And so uh, that, yeah, absolutely, folks have seen that, not just parents, but others. And we look forward to a deeper partnership with our communities than we ever had before, because it's our shared responsibility, right, to make sure every, every one of our students can live into their brilliance. Becky Pringle, president of the National Education Association. Anything else you'd like to add? I would love for your listeners to go to nea.org slash time to learn to join our efforts to cancel the standardized test in the middle of a pandemic, but also to learn about the strategies and resources that we have for parents and community members so that we can begin to de- create the kinds of, of authentic uh, and, and uh, whole student assessments that we need in every single state. Okay. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Becky. Sure appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. You stay safe. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We we, we We are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. The state legislature overrides the governor's veto on Senate Bill 22. We will tell you what that could mean for your family's health. The president comes to Columbus, his tour of the James Cancer Hospital, and his message about the American Rescue Plan and health care. Cutting through communities, how highways impacted families and what ODOT says it's doing to leave behind a problematic past. We certainly thank you for joining us on this Sunday. This is Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. The Ohio legislature makes an historic vote to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto. 62 affirmative votes, 35 negative votes. The bill, having received the required constitutional majority, passes notwithstanding the objections of the governor. Both the House and Senate voted to approve 
Senate Bill 22 with two-thirds majority. That is enough votes to override a veto. The bill limits the powers of the governor and the state health director to issue health orders without legislature approval. This is really about bringing the legislature to the table and giving us a voice and restoring checks and balances. I don't believe for a minute if, we, if this bill had been in place that we would see less lives lost. I believe we would have seen more lives lost. A spokesperson for Governor DeWine released a statement saying Governor DeWine remains focused on every single day on doing all he can to ensure every Ohioan who wants a COVID-19 vaccine can get one in the coming weeks, which science and infectious disease experts agree is what will help Ohio get through the pandemic. The bill will officially become law in 90 days. Now, before this bill was passed through an override, local health officials sounded the alarm. Franklin County health officials wrote, Board of Health orders are crucial tools to mitigate a situation, allowing time for a full investigation of a situation before it becomes urgent or worsens. Orders like these are utilized sparingly and almost always involve guidance and expertise from the CDC or the Ohio Department of Health. The department and several other public health agencies opposed the override. President Joe Biden was in Columbus. It was his first time in Ohio since taking office. And this visit was part of his Help is Here tour to promote the passage of the American Rescue Plan. But as 10TV's Angela Reigert explains, it was about health care, too. Welcome home, Mr. President. On the 11th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, President Joe Biden toured the James Cancer Hospital. All of our folks who've been on the front line and working behind the scenes, I think they get a tremendous boost from having the president be here on this particular day. A $100 million grant provided through the ACA helped build a floor here inside the oncology department. It increased access to care for a lot of underserved populations as well. And it led to technological innovations that are really signature in the field of cancer. It was an emotional experience for President Biden, who lost his son to a brain tumor. It's mostly hopeful because I don't want to see anybody go through what my son went through. During his visit, the president touted his $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, saying he's delivering on his promise to build on the Affordable Care Act, pumping up Obamacare premium subsidies. And we have a duty not just to protect it, but to make it better. And also making it easier to sign up, the president announced the special enrollment period will now be extended through August 15th. In the first two weeks alone, more than 200,000 Americans gain coverage. President Biden once again thanking health care workers and sharing his hopes for the future. That includes an agency dedicated to researching health care breakthroughs. When I ran, I said I wanted to be the president who would preside over the end of cancer as we know it. When we see the strides we made, you talk to the docs and the researchers, I can tell you, it's within our reach. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rigard, 10 TV News. The new chair of Ohio's Republican Party issued a statement on the president's visit. Bob Paduchik said, quoting here, 
Hardworking Ohioans don't like to be bribed with their own money. Working families know that spending billions of dollars on initiatives completely unrelated to COVID-19, including $600 million to erase San Francisco's budget deficit and $86 billion in bailouts for misgoverned Democrat-run cities, is a surefire way to not win support in Ohio. Again, that's the statement from the Ohio Republican Party new spokesperson, Bob Paduchik. Columbus City Council member Priscilla Tyson has announced her retirement. She wrote in a statement, Columbus is a special place and I am humbled by the 14 plus years of civic legislative service that you have entrusted to me. Council member Tyson says she is the longest serving woman council member in Columbus history. The city of Columbus says it is ordering six police officers to answer questions about possible criminal misconduct by other officers. This is specifically about their actions during the protests last summer. The city announced they could be subject to departmental charges of insubordination. The Fraternal Order of Police contract says if a member has been advised that the investigation may result in criminal charges, the member's refusal to answer questions or to participate in the investigation shall not be considered insubordination or like offense. There were multiple, multiple jurisdictions helping with the, with the protests and the riots. Multiple. This is a specific targeted only towards the Columbus police officers. And in Ohio, no person, individual, can be forced to give a statement in a misdemeanor investigation. So the frustrating thing here is that the contract between the city of Columbus and the police requires the city to follow the law. The city's statement said in part that extensive efforts have been made to elicit the cooperation of those witness officers, including assurances of immunity from prosecution or administrative sanctions. A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit filed by the state of Ohio to get data from the U.S. Census Bureau early. This would give Ohio access to information used for drawing congressional and legislative districts ahead of its planned release. The judge said there was nothing that could be done to fix Ohio's redistricting problem since it was impossible for the Census Bureau to meet the legally mandated March 31st deadline. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost says the state will appeal. The parents of Stone Foltz spoke for the first time since their son's death at Bowling Green State University, and they want all fraternities nationwide to be shut down. Sherry and Corey Foltz sat down with 10TV's Clay Gordon to talk about their son's death. They tell us Stone was hazed while pledging for his fraternity Pi Kappa Alpha. The family attorney tells us a preliminary autopsy showed his blood alcohol content was 0.394, which is almost five times the legal driving limit. His family says Greek life should be stopped immediately. Ohio's U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown introduced some new legislation to curb hazing on college campuses. Senator Brown says the REACH Act would require colleges to include hazing incidents in their annual crime reports and establish a standard definition for all schools. It's dangerous. It threatens the health and safety and lives of far too many Ohio students. For every tragic death we, that we hear about in the news, there are many others who survive but end up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning. Um, some of, sometimes those, that can be long-term. Colleges and universities would also be required to establish a campus-wide program to educate students about the dangers of hazing. Senator Brown says he's received bipartisan support in this effort. If the bill passes, it would become a federal law. The former Pike County Sheriff was sentenced for stealing. Charles Reeder will spend three years in prison. Reeder pled guilty to charges of theft in office and tampering with evidence. 10TV's Lacey Crisp has his pleas for freedom and reaction from the judge.
After serving 24 years in law enforcement, the former Pike County Sheriff was handcuffed and put in the back of a cruiser. In court, Charlie Reeder says he is a good man who made bad decisions. I have no words for the shame that I have and that I feel and the regret that I have. Outside the Pike County Court were armed deputies, sharpshooters, and canines. The courthouse itself blocked off. Inside, standing behind the defendant's table and set up on the side of the courtroom, former Pike County Sheriff begged the judge for mercy and forgiveness. Your Honor, please do not send me to prison. I have wronged, but I'm not ruined. I still have a lot of good left in me. Reader pled guilty in September to two counts of theft in office, two counts of tampering with evidence, and one count of conflict of interest. He originally faced 18 counts, including engaging in a pattern of corrupt activity. An anonymous source wrote a letter that Reader was taking loans from employees and taking money from evidence envelopes to cover thousands of dollars in gambling debt. Reader argued in court he used the money to get a tree planted for a little boy who passed away. The judge looked at him quizzically. The PSI officer notes that there's no documentation that you used it for those things. Right. With that, the judge sentenced Reader to serve three years in prison and three years community control. It cannot be underestimated the damage that you have caused to the citizens of Pike County to law enforcement. Reader has the option to appeal this sentencing in Pike County. Lacey Crisp, 10 TV News. With a felony conviction, Reader can never be a law enforcement officer or hold public office in Ohio again. Our way past COVID-19 restrictions has hit a little bit of a bump in the road. Next, the governor's message as we watch case numbers stop that downward trend. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. In times of fear, World Vision has been there for the most vulnerable. For the last 70 years, we've stood with kids and families during some of the world's hardest times. Through natural disasters, war, and disease, delivering life-saving aid and support, helping rebuild lives, and empowering entire communities to lift themselves out of poverty. And we're doing the same today. Because rising to these challenges is in our DNA. And with every act of courage, faith, and love, at home and abroad, we do more than just stop the spread of fear. We replace it with hope. Learn more at worldvision.org. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. 58 nursing homes and 158 assisted living facilities are being singled out by the governor for not providing vaccines to their residents. These are facilities that, despite repeated attempts to find out, there's no information on whether residents have been vaccinated. The governor says he's calling them out 
because the public needs to know. You can see which nursing homes and or assisted living centers the state is naming by going to our, our website, 10tv.com. You know, there is a claim making its way around social media that half of the migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border have COVID-19. Evan Koslov verifies whether that's true. The Verify team is here to bring you the facts about the viral posts being spread around on social media. Take this claim, which is showing up in tweets and headlines. Up to 50% of illegal immigrants have COVID-19. So let's verify. Is that number based on any hard data? Our sources are acting FEMA administrator Robert Fenton and this document from the National Sheriff's Association. Let's start there. It's a draft of a border security resolution from the National Sheriff's Association. It reads, quote, Estimates are that between 5% and 50% of the persons crossing without documentation are COVID positive. We reached out to the Sheriff's Association to ask where this number came from, and a spokesperson told us the following. This is an estimate from border sheriffs from experiences in their community. I don't think anyone is counting specifically. So we can verify that those numbers came from members of the National Sheriff's Association, but they're estimates, not hard testing numbers. So what are the actual numbers? Well, the Department of Homeland Security declined to give us any. So there's testing happening. But we can look to the congressional tape. In a March 16th congressional hearing, acting FEMA Administrator Robert Fenton said this. What we're seeing is less than 6% positive right now coming across the border. So we could verify that this 50% headline is not based on any hard data and is much higher than the information released by FEMA. With your Verify, I'm Evan Kozlov. Frustrated with your internet service? If so... The FCC wants to hear from you. For the first time, they are taking personal stories of connect connectivity issues around the country. Here in Ohio, it's estimated that a million people lack access to high-speed Internet. That's according to Innovate Ohio. In a time when everything we do, when you think about it, it depends on fast Internet. Many people, though, are literally left out. Huawei G works from home in Plain City. He shared the link to this new FCC form you can fill out to describe your experience in his community's Facebook group. He said for him, it's about advocating for more reliable Internet options besides Spectrum. If you look on the FCC broadband maps, you have two other choices that are above 25 megabytes, which would account as high speed uh, broadband internet and those two other options are satellite and working from home if there's a cloud or a storm you can't reliably work with satellite to expand high-speed internet in ohio lieutenant governor Husted, the founder and director of innovate ohio says he and governor mike dewine have asked the legislature to approve 290 million dollars to invest in broadband here he says until now, we've been relying on Internet service providers telling us where that service is and is not. Uh, we have um, up-to-date maps based on their reporting. As you see right here, this is what the coverage is supposed to be for Ohio for high-speed Internet. But I was up in this part of the state last week, uh, up uh, where I grew up in rural northwest Ohio, talking to individual customers you see are supposed to be covered here, but they say they don't have it. If you're ready to sound off about your broadband, we have all of the information you need at 10tv.com. You know, last month, 10tv's coverage of Black History Month included a look at the importance of family, education, and the economy, along with society and cultural contributions. There was a practical exploration of infrastructure, too, with reporting on the history and impact of highways cutting right through historic black neighborhoods. 
It was devastating, but today we look to the future with the Ohio Department of Transportation. And as 10TV's Brittany Bailey reports, leaders say they have no plans to repeat history. These days, a drive along Long Street is a drive through history. That's really where this project was born out of, was the thoughts from the community about kind of honoring the past, but really bringing those connections back. And I think it's really a phenomenal thing that we have in our city that doesn't really exist anywhere else, especially linked to a highway project. Yes, this cultural wall that sits just above I-71 is tied to an Ohio Department of Transportation project. Overall, it's a $1.4 billion project that really touches all of those freeways that, that go through downtown, I-71, I-70, I-670, and 315. And so it's got 19 or so phases that make up that project, and it's really been under construction for quite a few years now and probably will continue for a while more uh, getting all those phases done. It's not so far off base to call this a makeup project. In Columbus, you have about 40 miles of interstate uh, 670, 71, and 70 that are within the Outer Belt, almost all of them go through black and poor communities. It happened to Hanford Village, King Lincoln Bronzeville, and Mount Vernon. It's an ugly legacy, but I want to say one thing. The one thing is that we can't undo the past, but we can work to mitigate it. One thing that the DeWine Houston administration is absolutely committed to is environmental justice and reconnecting communities to economic opportunity. Out of that commitment grew the Long Street Cultural Wall, the High Street Cap Project over I-670, and now the Broad Street development and Fulton Bridge construction. The interstate system is almost 60 years old, so it has to be reconstructed. And we're working with communities not against them as it were in the past. Safety is always our number one goal, and that is part of the pro probably what started a lot of the highway improvements being needed, but then bringing that into the communities and really talking to the communities about what they wanted and kind of righting those wrongs of the past that brought those connections back together. Progress will always plow forward, but ODOT leaders say they won't let it plow through the past. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. Former Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton is now one of the American Red Cross's Humanitarians of the Year. Dr. Acton, along with other Central Ohio health providers, was given the honor during a virtual celebration. The award is being given to these recipients for their hard work in saving lives every day during the pandemic. There are some new developments for people who are living as those so-called COVID-long haulers. Late last month, that condition was officially named post-acute sequelae of coronavirus infection. This is when people continue to experience symptoms long after their COVID diagnosis. Kelly Gliney, a mother in northern Ohio, has been documenting her long hauler life on social media and says this new name gives the condition legitimacy. Having an actual diagnosis code, it's like, that's a thing that disability can look at. That's a thing that the insurance companies can look at and say, okay, we're going to cover this because of this. It, it gives a lot more um, legitimacy. Kelly says she's hopeful for more change. The financial fallout from the pandemic is far-reaching. For many families and individuals, covering the cost of certain necessities is impossible. We're talking about items including food, rent, and for women, even menstrual hygiene necessities. It's not something many people want to talk about. But 10TV's Gabriela Garcia talked with an Ohio State University student who's trying to change that. 
OSU senior Anusha Singh has a lot to be proud of. And I just remember standing there. She's a TED contributor, helping lead hundreds of young people like her. And her cause. My t-shirt says we are the menstrual movement. A movement she's especially proud of. Period poverty is when um, people who menstruate lack access to or can't afford menstrual products. Anusha's the campaign lead for OSU's chapter of Period, a nonprofit hoping to fight period poverty. This issue is not talked about enough because of the stigma attached to it. People who menstruate are often forced to resort to using unhygienic methods of maintaining their periods. That is terrible for so many reasons. Anusha says those alternative methods can lead to deadly consequences. And when she learned about this, she knew she had to do something. <laughs> Thank you for showing up. She made it her mission to spread the word about period poverty. This is Anusha Singh with period. Holding press conferences, rallies, and getting the right people to hear her and her fellow organizers. Um, one was held outside of the Democratic presidential debates. It was really cool to see afterwards five presidential candidates really openly tweet and endorse this campaign. Period even got Governor Mike DeWine's attention. He signed a law to repeal the tampon tax that classified hygiene products as luxury items, making them more expensive. Anusha knows how touchy her cause is. The second I mentioned the word period on the House floor, it was just so shocking to me. The squirming, the shame, the blushing. But it's much more than a word. It's about human dignity, right? Nobody should have to feel like their period is a barrier to them. Reporting in Columbus. Your voice matters. Gabriela Garcia. You can start challenging the stigma right now. 10 TV News. Thank you all for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Rick Burt. He is the president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. How are you? Great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, talking to us. You know, time sure does fly, because I remember when SAD stood for Students Against Drunk Driving, and I just looked it up, and, and it's been, what, like 20 years or something since the name change. While impaired driving was still a critical issue, there were so many other risks and pressures that they were facing in their daily lives. So at the urging of young people across the country, we expanded the name and expanded the mission to not only talk about traffic safety, but also talk about things like substance abuse, uh, vaping, electronic cigarettes, uh, mental health and leadership development, all things that are really pressing young people in 2020 in this day and age that we live in. And you're coming up on 40 years overall for the organization. That's correct. Yeah, the, the 2021 year is going to be a big year for us. Not only are we going to celebrate the things that we've been able to accomplish, because there certainly you know, has been progress. Underage drinking is on a decline. We continue to see numbers dipping in uh, terms of impaired driving crashes and the like. But there are new pressures that young people are facing, certainly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen teen suicides be on the rise. We have seen uh, substance abuse and drug use be on the rise because of the isolation young people are facing and you know by definition humans are social beings so some of the people who have been most impacted 
by this isolation, our teens who are not able to go to school, not able to connect with their friends, not able to have those special moments like graduation, like prom, like, you know, a regular Tuesday in homeroom, all those things that make adolescents so special have really been taken from them. So we're working hard to, you know, create opportunities still for connection in a virtual era, provide parents and other adult allies resources they need to keep teens safe, and also, you know, really empower the whole community to focus on youth safety in a time when we really need young people to be engaged uh, and be active members of our society. I've often thought about how stressful this must be for kids because they don't have decades of life to draw from to learn how to cope with this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, for for many of our, you know, for many of our students that are in middle school and high school, this is really one of the first crises they've seen in their lifetime. You know, teens are a little older, you know, my age and those of us who are in our 30s, we remember 9/11, we remember other historical events in our history, but Teens say this is really their first taste of something like this, and, and really it's a unique moment for all of us. We've, ne- we've never had you know, something that you can't see, something that you can't really experience, um, just the unknown of COVID-19 and the evolving science, the, the contradictory message, and the way it's been politicized really do put a pressure on all of us that I think all of our listeners probably have felt but especially for young people, again, who are dealing with their first crises, who are now, you know, stuck inside, stuck at home, not having the, those relationships with friends, not even being able to, you know, go to church or be a part of a, other communities that are so important to their development. And, you know, on, on top of all of this, the, the political rhetoric of the day has been quite intense. It's, you know, you turn on the, the, the news and, and, you know, you do begin to worry about the state of the world. So, we're, we're creating spaces where young people can do positive things, where they can be engaged in acts of volunteerism, even even virtually. We're creating groups where they can get together and talk and, you know, have fun, um, do crazy and, and safe things uh, all in a digital format so that they can still be reminded of the good in the world and so that parents can have some talking points and tips, some, some things that they can do as a family to put some degree of normalcy in a season that has been anything but normal. What kind of a presence does SAD have in Ohio? Yeah, we've got over 200 chapters in the Great Buckeye State, uh, in all 88 counties, um, in, in quite a few of our of high schools across the area. Um, we're particularly proud of the work that we do with the Ohio Department of Public Safety and the Ohio State Highway Patrol. We've been working with them for years to really focus on traffic safety, which has continued to be a leading cause of death for young people in Ohio. We lose almost 200 teens every year across the Buckeye State, all because of crashes that are not accidents. They're, they're in most cases, totally preventable. Speed, impairment, distractions, those are all some of the leading causes that combine with inexperience. Because when a teen is in a situation, you know, they've, they've had their license for a short period of time, they don't quite have that experience to be able to navigate those different environments. By that, with peer pressure and the things I've already mentioned, no, it's no wonder why car crashes are still leading cause of, of young Ohioans. So we're working with all of our partners, not only during the, this holiday season, but all year long, to really empower teens with safe driving messages, to, again, give resources to parents like our Passport to Safe Driving that we put together with the National Road Safety Foundation that, again, teaches a parent how to be a good coach for a young person as they're getting their driver's license. And I also work with uh, local law enforcement, other community partners, members of the media like yourself, Dave, to help us get our message out and make sure that every young person is safe behind the wheel every trip, every time. You know, I shudder to think about what would be happening on the roads if cell phones and texting and all that had come out before some of the safety features in cars like airbags and the like. Yeah. 
fascinating because what you're talking about is the evolution of technology, right? Uh, and, and sometimes it's technology that's saving lives, but also it's technology that's putting people at more risk. Right. Uh, you know, we've continued to see that, that cell phone usage is an issue, but not just cell phone usage, but putting, you know, other teens in the car uh, are, are a common distraction, reaching for things, eating and drinking things that are non-alcoholic. I think, you know, our listeners probably all admit that there's times we're tempted to do all of those things, even those of us in the, the traffic safety perspective. But what we try to do is, is frame it as in, is that behavior, is that action really worth putting your life or someone else's life uh, at risk? And when you think about it from that context, you know, answering that phone call, answering that text message, uh, reaching for that pair of sunglasses that's falling on the floor, none of it seems worth it. So we encourage people to stop, to think, and really make sure that what they're doing behind the wheel keeps themselves and other roadway users safe, too. Well, you mentioned that uh, you're doing a lot of things uh, virtually right now because of the pandemic. And when it comes to recruiting kids into this line of thinking and, and joining the group, is that normally, would you be doing that through, like, school assemblies and things like that, or what? Absolutely, yeah. So our program is really multifaceted. The, the first thing we do is certainly work with school districts across the, across the state, and we develop school-based chapters. But we're not limited to schools. We have chapters that are based in houses of worship, community centers, um, all sorts of makeups are, that are places where youth are naturally joining together and coming together. So normally we would be heavily reliant on those types of environments, whether that's a school assembly, maybe a parenting workshop that you know maybe a church or a synagogue is, is hosting, lots of those different events that many of our listeners probably have seen across the state. And in all virtual environment, many of our chapters are still meeting. You know, like all of us, they're, they've now you know, reduced their lives to Zoom meetings and uh, go-to webinars, things like that. But sad chapters are still meeting across the Buckeye State. But we're also opening up new opportunities. There are some schools who have said, <clears throat> excuse me, who have said, there's just, they just don't have the capacity to have extracurriculars with everything that's going on. So we've created something we're calling Buckeye Nation SAD, which is the opportunity for any student in the state of Ohio who wants to join in uh, on monthly calls and be a part of the activities we're doing to, to join in in a statewide chapter uh, and work with other teams across the state to, again, have some fun, uh, win some prizes, uh, do some other cool things, and uh, be together even though we are apart. So if students are interested in that, you can go to uh, oh.sad.org, oh.sadb.org, or you can follow us on any of our social media channels, Ohio Sad on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or follow the National Sad Movement uh, at Sad Nation on any of those uh, regular platforms. We've got resources for everybody, Dave, teens, parents, uh, the broader community. We've got something for everyone to help keep young people safe. Talking with Rick Burt, he's president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. It seems like with a virtual format that it would allow uh, some, some pretty uh, good focusing and maybe some brainstorming for things that can happen once uh, the pandemic is over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, even though this is a horrible situation, and certainly we are reminded of just how tragic this, this COVID-19 pandemic is, we are trying to, to leverage it to learn and to figure out new ways to, to work in a world. Teens are, are very virtual by their nature, and we know that they live on social media. So we've been fortunate to already have a strong social media presence and have good connection points with teens across the state. But you know, certainly there are, there's more that we're going to need to be able to do, and there's going to be uh, long-term uh, effects of COVID-19. Teens who are going to be suffering more from anxiety and depression. The CDC, even before the pandemic, found that one in four high school students in this country 
was suffering from a diagnosable mental health disorder, whether that be anxiety, depression, bipolarism, whatever it might be. And so we're expecting that post-pandemic, we're going to see, you know, um, increases in, in need for physical activity. Uh, effects of, of that depression and anxiety from living in a world now where you can't really see the dangers that are around the corner. So we're, gonna, we're going to be focusing on how we can help promote resiliency and coping skills in young people in this digital environment so that when we get back to you know, life as normal, uh, we'll still have more and more opportunities that are readily available to connect with teens all across the state. And also encouraging people to you know, think about how they can give back in this time. I mentioned that SAD chapters are really active in volunteerism. We're a, we're a partner of the Presidential Volunteer Service Award, where every hour that a SAD student spends on any of our programs count towards getting those uh, community service hours, which gives them scholarships and other special recognition. So there's never been a better time as a family to focus on giving back to the community. We have a whole guide for virtual volunteer opportunities that folks all across the state of Ohio can use to make a difference locally at the state level, uh, across the country, or even across the globe. So you can visit sad.org and see some of our resources there. Great opportunity to give back. Uh, the last thing I would say is make sure you're checking in on each other. It's not enough just to make sure people are getting out of bed, but don't be afraid to have the tough conversations and ask teens how they're doing, how they're coping. Um, and it's okay, as I've told lots of teens, it's okay not to be okay. What's not okay is to not get the help that you need. So when folks do have concerns, there are great resources across the state, like the uh, statewide suicide prevention hotline, the national suicide prevention hotline, and of course, talking to your doctor or healthcare professional who can help diagnose what you've got going on and get you the help that you need to feel better and, and remember that you are deeply loved and deeply valued. That's the most important thing we can do. Good advice. Rick Bird, again, president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. Uh, Rick, if folks uh, want more information here in Ohio about the organization and how to get involved, how do they do it? Two quick, easy ways. You can visit our website, oh.sad.org oh.sadb.org, or follow us on your favorite social media station, our social media platform, uh, always under Ohio SAD, or follow us nationally at SAD Nation. We'd love to connect with you, give you resources, and plug you into the great work that's happening, because there's a lot of good that young people are doing in these dark days, even if people don't necessarily feel it. There's good happening, and we need everyone to keep young people safe. Okay, Rick Burt with SAD. Thanks so much for your time. Good luck to you, Rick. Hey, thanks, Dave. Many employees unable to work because of COVID-19-related reasons may be able to take up to two weeks of paid sick leave and up to 10 more weeks of paid leave to care for their children whose schools or places of care have closed or whose daycare providers are unavailable. To find out if you qualify, visit dol.gov FFCRA or call a trained professional at 866-4-US-WAGE. This message is sponsored by the U.S. Department of Labor. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He is the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. It's springtime out, and Mr. Sunshine is here. How you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Find out, Dave, that uh, you got your Johnson & Johnson vaccination? I'm, uh, I got my one and done, yeah. So I'm about to be unleashed on society. Yeah, look out, Columbus. Here comes Dave. <laughs> enough to get in with the first group um, um, and really grateful for that. And uh, so now businesses are, are starting to call people back a little more often and I guess you're kind of uh, partway there in some ways, right? Yeah, you know, um, we have after school centers so those two centers actually have been open since the pandemic started. Um, we stopped all programming for a while and, and but we still made them food distribution centers and also supplies like diapers and, and cleaning things and, and stuff like that, particularly, you know, some of our families, uh, when the whole family got infected, you know, early in the pandemic, you know, they couldn't go to a grocery store. So we needed to do porch drop offs for them and, and um, even with our young moms and things like that. So. Um, those staff have always been working, but all of our 60 licensed uh, uh, workers, um, counselors, uh, went to telehealth. So um, there was no need for them to be in the office, certainly, so everybody worked from home. Um, and we sent all departments home. Actually, this building, we have uh, a few buildings in this building. I think, you know, I came to work every day, and, and two other people did. But other than that, it was us three, and, and that was it. But now... Um, we're very, very fortunate. Over 70% of our um, staff are now vaccinated. So um, we're going to start gradually bringing them back. You know, we, we have brought back, you know, our, our billing department. We've brought back our management staff. And now we're going to start looking at our, um, our frontline staff. Some of them have been back um, because of our uh, contracts with certain school systems. Southwest has been open, so those staff have been back. Um, but the, the majority of them are, are still working from home. So we're going to start the step up process. Now, your counselors and therapists who work with mainly kids like to do it face-to-face and perhaps even in their homes. Uh, uh, how, how is that going to unroll? That, um, across the entire, you know, because I, I, I sit on many other committees uh, uh, throughout the uh, county, adult telehealth did not drop that much. And even we have a small adult program, and it did not drop at all. Those, those numbers stayed uh, consistent. But with kids... There was a quick burnout process in the whole telehealth thing, so um, where the numbers really dropped to between 65 and 70 percent of what they were uh, being able to do before. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is, it, it's we're purchased a service here, so um, although our services are all free to the people that we serve, um, the people who end up paying for these services um, expect to see, you know, a product out of that. So um, we have productivity standards, and our productivity was between 65 and 70 percent. Um, so that, you know, that's a 30, 35 percent drop, um, which is a hard hit financially, and we, we can't sustain that. Uh, fortunately, you know, we did get a PPP loan, and fortunately, um, we've had great people like, you know, the Osteopathic Heritage Foundation step up and, and, and help us through some of this, but the loss is still mounted. And um, we have to address that. So at some point, you know, people are starting to return to the workplace and we have to bring our staff back, um, still respecting them, still respecting their decisions, um, but also respecting and, 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 and uh, accepting the fact that regardless of, of, of being human services and uh, assisting people, um, there's a business side of it that we have to balance or, or we won't be open and then nobody gets served. 
talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. It's going to be, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting time period because I think the level of excitement just about spring and returning to some level of normalcy and the, the optimism is really high, but this is going to be complicated, not only from a business standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint for a lot of people. You know, I can't stress enough that communication is key. I will tell you, it was back in January when I first started presenting to our staff a step-up process of bringing people back. And we're still not there yet, um, but I think it was critically important that they understood um, at some point we're going to gradually move back to to where we're at. I let people know, you know, if your position can be managed at home, that's fine. uh, And you're you're still able to do uh, uh, the job that you were able to do before. But... um, for the majority of people, we're going to have to go back out in the community because one thing that's different with us is we didn't do office-based counseling. The majority of our, our counseling has always been face-to-face. We go to the homes. Uh, we go to the school. We're out in the community. Um, so that, that puts us, you know, in, in, in front of people. So staying safe is critical. I respect everyone's right of whether they want to get uh, vaccinated or not. Fortunately, uh, most of our people are. Um, but if you choose not to, we can't also put people at risk. I still even think with vaccinated, we can socially distance and wear a mask. Um, but in some positions, that's going to be tip, d- difficult to maintain. So uh, I let them all know in January, if you're in that position, um, we'll try to work around that. You know, if, if we have to, uh, you know, restructure your job, we'll do that. Um, but we will work with you. But it was critical that I communicated that in January so that now that we're at the doorstep of starting to implement some of these things no one is surprised this uh situation as people come back into uh society you know going to stores or restaurants uh whatever it's interesting because the people who have spent their time at home who are kind of shut-ins for one reason or another whether it's uh, agoraphobia or depression anxiety you know what i mean i mean there can be all kinds of different reasons why people might be more comfortable as things have been for the last year that will i mean let's face it some people are more outgoing um some people are more dependent so these are people who uh are used to being out socially and used to being with other people but you know there i always look at at things like in in three types of, of human interaction so whenever you feel anxiety and fear some people will uh address that anxiety and fear and attack it um some people will latch on to somebody else because they need them to help them those are the dependents um and some people will withdraw uh, uh and and those are your isolates We've always given mixed message, I think, to to even kids growing up who are more isolated um, because when we force them to be in play groups or we force them, you know, you you need to do this, and you're giving them a message that, hey, the way you're wired um, is not right. And and it's not a very good message when you're trying to build up someone's self-esteem or sense of self-efficacy, especially when your parent is the one giving you that message. So some people who are just naturally wired to be more isolated um, this has been great for them. I mean, it's uh, uh, it allowed them to be in their comfort zone. So that can be very anxiety-producing now for some of them that are going to have to go back out to uh, um, interact with the external environment um, in, in the way that we did before, which was always anxiety-producing for them. There was also, I just saw a story the other day that 42% of adults said they had gained weight during the pandemic, an average of 29 pounds, 37 for men and 22 for women. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if people have 
gained a, a significant amount of weight, you know, that's not going to be comfortable for them either as they go back. Well, and not to mention, I mean, there, there's health things that come along with that. There's a, um, wow, well, they need to get out walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. One of the challenges I've had this entire time is when the gym's closed. So, um, you know, I, I the gym is where I manage my stress and I start every day there at 5.30 and um, I waited for a while after the gyms opened up in Ohio just because I wasn't comfortable going back but I think exercise and things like that is very important to many people um, and not having access to that or not uh, being able to do that um, although I will say uh, one of the more safer things you can always do is golf Dave <laughs> oh, here we go I, I know what's coming folks he told me before we started taping <laughs> and I shot a 39 on the front nine, which is great for me. Um, I was on fire, and it felt so good. So um, I've already told uh, everybody at work that um, I need to submit a secession plan because I'm joining the senior tour. We're, we're ready. <laughs> All right. I think golf has been a great outlet. I think a lot of people feel more comfortable doing it. It's easy to social isolate. Um, most places have it that you're just one person to a cart. Um, it, it's been one of the... the, the uh, things that I have used to um, continue in this process. I played golf three times in November, three times in December, so um, I, you know, I just never stopped from our league play over in the summer, and that's been a true blessing for me. It, it's, uh, I think it's important that we get back out there. It just helped with all of our mental health and just the balance of things. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Before we wrap up, Dwayne, I know that you have got a partnership with some local breweries, and you're going to start doing an event in April, starting in April. www.dfyf.org um, and uh, you'll get uh, neat little glasses that have our logo on it and um, I guess I shouldn't really be promoting this as health care. Don't sign up <laughs> if you have drinking problems So, um, and, and the tasting glasses probably I don't know, maybe four ounces, six ounces um, but it's a nice little fundraiser. You know, it's been difficult, I will say not just for us, but for all nonprofits um, who, are, who rely on fundraisers at time to raise Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, the creativity has been uh, has been great and and necessary, but I guess that's kind of what mankind does to further their life and everybody else's. Yeah, you you know you you take what comes and you adjust, and some people do it easier than others. You know, change is is change, and, and um, it can be challenging for some people. It can be exciting for others, and I think in the end, um, we've all learned an awful lot through this process. Dwayne, if folks want more information about your agency and to find out about this uh, beer tasting you're doing monthly, uh, where do they find it? They can check us. It sounds weird saying that, Dave, <laughs> this, this beer thing you're doing monthly. Um, they can check us out on the web, www.dfyf.org. Um, 
uh, anybody needs services or anything, we're open for business. Uh, um, our services, like I said, are free. Um, it, they can call our intake department, area code 614-294-2661. Uh, we do know through this pandemic, particularly with kids, mental health issues have really started to, to skyrocket. Um, and we, we have services to uh, address those things. So uh, it takes courage to ask for help. Um, I think it's courageous people who enter into therapy, um, and we certainly just shouldn't ignore that, especially now. Exciting and yet uh, a difficult time ahead for a lot of folks and uh, something to, to definitely keep an eye on. Thanks uh, for your time, Dwayne. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Take care, ma'am. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.